Hello and welcome to Re-Energize. This is the place to discover more about emerging tech in offshore renewables and the way that we will harness natural resources to meet our future energy needs. My name is Lorna Bennett and I am a project engineer at the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, specialising in blade recycling and sustainable practices. Having achieved impressive cost reduction targets, our first generation offshore turbines are approaching the end of their lives. These turbines don't just pose a practical question around their imminent disposal, they are also providing vital expertise for increasing sustainability of their successors. This is where a circular economy approach comes in. A circular economy aims to make better use of materials, components and products by minimising the amount of resources taken from the natural environment maximising the prevention of waste and optimising their economic, social, technical and environmental values throughout consecutive life cycles. While between 85 to 90% of a wind turbine is already widely considered to be recyclable, turbine blades remain the stubborn final step in creating a sustainable supply chain in the UK that can extend to more advanced circular economy practices. These include extending components, for example through refurbishment, reuse and remanufacturing, as well as designing out waste and tough to recycle materials right from the very start. Investing now in the future of offshore wind farm sustainability will help to unlock the benefits of a circular economy in the design, maintenance and end of life planning of offshore wind farms for the next generation of sustainable products, accelerating the industry's mission to design out waste from the start and create thousands of jobs in the repair, remanufacture and recycling sectors. If you're a regular listener, you'll remember that we discussed visions for creating a circular economy in the wind sector in our November episode. The topic has generated so much interest that we'd like to revisit it, this time widening the focus to bring in experience and views from other industries. Helping me disentangle topics like composite recycling, the more sustainable materials of the future, and lifetime extension of industrial assets are two leading experts in sustainability from the Catapult Network. We have Lucy Edge, Chief Operating Officer of the Satellite Applications Catapult, and Graham Cruikshank, Chief Technology and Innovation Officer from the Centre for Process Innovation, CPI, which is part of the High Value Manufacturing Catapult. I'll hand over to you, Lucy, to introduce yourself and your industries to our listeners. Thank you, Lorna. Yes, I, I work in the space industry and have done for my entire career. And the space industry is on a really exciting journey at the moment. We have historically been led by major governments and major governments have occasionally collaborated and sometimes competed with each other to have ownership of space or assets in space. But there's been a move recently to see a much more commercial approach to the space industry. And we know about that through things like SpaceX and Elon Musk and his adventures, um, Blue Origin and, and some of the mega constellations that we've all heard about, whether that would be you know, one web or the Starlink constellations. But there's another move that's about to happen now and it's just in its very early stages and that's about developing the space economy. What does an e economic arrangement in space look like? How do we use space to create products, to manufacture and, and to provide something more than the services that we all know and are used to? And Graham, please could you tell us a bit about yourself and the industries that come under the scope of your work at the CPI? Thank you for the invitation to join you today. My name is Graham Cruikshank. I studied chemistry. I had a PhD in chemistry as well. And as was tradition in those days, PhD chemists went to ICI. 
And ICI was the mothership of the chemical industry around the world, frankly. She was the jewel in the British crown. However, one, I didn't stay with ICI. I went to Procter & Gamble and started to develop consumer goods because I was fed up trying to explain to people what the preparation, characterization and catalytic properties of gallium-loaded zeolites were all about. When my mum was much, much happier saying to her friends, oh, Ur Graham's inventing that fairy liquid. And seeing the delight on her face really gave me pleasure. So I spent my career formulating consumer goods. So I now work for an organisation called the Centre for Process Innovation, who are part of the high-value manufacturing catapult. It is complex because what is high-value manufacturing? The obvious answer would be things like planes and cars and wind turbine blades and railway rolling stock. What we have to remember is that all of those came from materials, chemistries, chemicals. Some were derived from natural sources, some are derived through biotechnical processes, some are just good old-fashioned chemistry. But the finding, making, mixing and stabilising of those materials represents a huge challenge to the food and drink sector, the consumer goods sector, the pharmaceutical sector, the paints, the inks, the coatings, the detergents, which was my personal background. So as a result, CPI supports the process industries. Well, thank you both for such interesting introductions. I feel this is going to be a fascinating conversation. But before we go any further, I think it might be worth explaining for the benefits of our listeners who are unfamiliar with our network what we mean when we talk about the catapults. So the catapult network was set up by the UK government to accelerate technology innovation across the UK economy with the vision to turn promising research into exportable goods and services. Is that the best description or how would you describe the catapult vision for our listeners? I think the network of catapults is quite a hard thing to explain. Sometimes I try and describe it as filling the gap in the UK that we don't know is missing until we look for it. But we know we've got these amazing universities and these amazing educational centres and we know that the research and the development activities in the UK across all sorts of backgrounds is really world leading. And then we find out that sometimes we don't do quite so well at developing really powerful and impressive startups that become famous all over the world, even though we've had these amazing initial ideas. And one of the key roles of the catapults is to help create industrial companies, organisations that can really commercialize and help us all benefit from that brilliant R&D that comes out of our education system. And that's not an easy journey because carrying out research and development at what we call the technology readiness level, so low low level technology readiness, it is really exciting and interesting and, and, and we're really quite good at it. And when you've got a commercial product, something that's got an end user and it's clear and you can see how you can sell it, We're quite good at that as well. And then there's a bit in the middle, which we often call the valley of death or or something equally gloomy, where getting from this brilliant research idea, you know, I've had this great idea to build a widget and then finding a customer for it or, or having a brilliant problem that needs solving and finding the right piece of research that will solve it. Pulling those two pieces together in the middle across the valley of death can be really quite tricky. And the catapults create a community and a network across all sorts of high value sectors to sort of just help reduce that gap a little bit and to help people move across that gap and help 
organizations and ideas move across that gap faster, but also more effectively. So we've got real value in the products at the end of it. Typically what the catapults are is a means whereby people can come and try things, experiment with things, run prototypes of things to see which of these four options really is the most viable one for making this work down the line before I commit my limited resources in building the facility or building the factory or or scaling up the process overall. Help me reduce my number of options so I get down to a fewer number which are genuinely executable. I will then be successful at the end of the day launching in market. So our role is, as I say, not to invent. Other people are inventing. Not to sell. Other people are commercializing. But to help those people be successful so that ultimately we can retain and create more jobs and more prosperity in the UK. And that's what allows me to sleep very soundly at night. When I describe what we do to my daughters, I often say, we're on the side of the angels. The work we do is on the side of the angels. I have no vested interest. I'm not trying to sell anything. I'm trying to make good things happen for this country. That's really excellent. Thanks, Graham. That's a perfect picture it's painted there. Just to set the scene, in the wind industry, we're currently at the stage where it's been estimated that it should be possible to recycle about 85 to 90% of a wind turbine. The remaining gap is largely considered to be the blades as it has been challenging to find recycling solutions for composite materials, separating the layers of fibres and resins that they're made of. And that's an idea of huge focus for us right now. Graham and Lucy, are composites an area you both have come up against in your focus industries? Composites are an extremely interesting and important area across almost all of the industries that we support because they're materials that were made by chemicals. You talked there about resins holding fibres together. Well, guess what? They're both materials. They both had to come from somewhere. They both had to be handled. They both had to be formed. But in reality, they also have to be dealt with at the end of life. And that's an interesting mindset shift that I'm very proud to see being much more readily embraced by all of the industries that I support. It will no longer be acceptable to just make plastic bags because we can produce ethylene. That's kind of how it was 30 years ago. No one is going to allow for that sort of thinking to continue. So the industries that are the manufacturers of resins or other epoxy systems or binder systems or lubrication systems that go into the molding and separation of composites span aerospace, automotive, sports and leisure goods. So as a consequence, actually, CPI and the National Composite Centre in Bristol do have an alliance for a programme called Sustainable Composites, addressing those areas. Where specifically what we've been calling out is, well, one, what do I do with the stuff we've already got? How do I deal with legacy blades? What am I going to do with these things? Two, There are solutions that are on the table, but nobody's quite got the ability to deploy them yet with sufficient funds to invest to really get them to work effectively. And then the third tranche is, well, let's just accept that the future isn't going to allow us to make things that we didn't know how to handle again. So designing for end of life has to be the next phase in all of those sectors, cars, planes, other assembled components and blades in your case, as we're talking about today. It's one of the things where intercepting the unexpected consequences of innovation is so important to the catapult centres. We, during our industrial heritage over the last couple of hundred years, know the sorts of mess we've made of the atmosphere that we're having to clean up now. I don't want to shirk that. I think we all we all know that. And that's maybe what brings the challenge of composites into sharp relief, because the role of composites in the industries I face was about reducing CO2 emissions. 
The role of composites was about lightweighting vehicles, allowing for more fuel efficiency, resulting in lower CO2 emissions. A good thing, the side of the angels. The unintended consequence, however, sometimes was, gosh, what do I do with this at the end? Because I got so excited about the possibility of the solution I was providing in the short term, I had accepted that that benefit was so big, I wanted to drive it forward. When maybe with hindsight, I would have thought, gosh, what am I planning for now to make sure I don't have a problem down the line to deal with? Yeah, that's a, that's a big point and a, the full life cycle thought consideration there. But as Graham just mentioned there, Lucy, the wind industry largely turned to composites so that we could make more lightweight structures. I'm assuming weight is quite a serious consideration when you're talking about putting things into space. You're quite right. And also, I'm very interested to hear a lot of the things that you and Graham have both said around composites and, and what the future of composites is, because they're a huge part of the space industry and the structures that we build, largely because of the environmental challenge that is faced by having to launch a space mission. So when you launch something, you have to, first of all, escape gravity. That's hard. That requires a counter G-force that, you know, so there's, there's an enormous amount of force on anything that you're trying to have leave the Earth. You've then got to battle your way through the atmosphere, which as a human being doesn't feel like much down here. But when you're at high speeds traveling through it, it's an extremely dense environment. And that dense environment creates very hot surfaces for anything traveling through it. And then, of course, you get through it and you get out into this wonderful piece of space where it's a vacuum and it's all clean and lovely. And you may be hidden from the sun. You may be in eclipse, effectively, and you're feeling really low, low temperatures, very negative temperatures. Or you could be in direct sunlight. The same body, the same body that was built to be in those shade systems, has to then handle direct sunlight. And so the combination of the high G-forces, the high temperatures and the very, very low temperatures, so the temperature variations, means that we have to be able to build structures that can live in a very hostile environment effectively. And that means that composites are extremely useful to the space industry and we use them in lots of different ways across the whole system. So in, in launch vehicles, they are involved in some of the hot areas like the nozzle on a rocket engine or in some of the high pressure areas. Like if we have a pressure vessel for a propellant, then it's quite often made of a thin layer of metal, but then it's wrapped to give it that pressure resistance. And things, especially in uh, what we call the fairing, so that sort of nose cone on, on a launch vehicle, the fewer joints you have, the better the performance of, of that vehicle. So again, composites lend themselves really well to developing you know, many, many meters of very specific rigidity of structure that can also withstand these temperatures and these, these G-forces. So the combination of all of these challenges means that, that we have composites throughout the whole value chain. And, and that's why I think it's really interesting to hear what you're saying about the sustainability of composites, but both legacy ones and future designs. And I know we're going to come on to talk about what happens next in terms of sustainability, but there's some really interesting points to pull out there. Putting composites aside for one moment, what are the key sustainability challenges that your catapults are focused on right now? 
So I am fortunate in that I head up the circular economy strategy team for the whole high value manufacturing catapult, which uh, to bear in mind is a, is a seven centre organisation, which is spread across the, the UK. It's almost a sort of spine-like structure all the way up the UK, if you look at it on the map, spanning from organisations in, in Glasgow, in the northeast, in, in the Midlands and down towards Bristol. And across us, we are supporting the sustainability challenges of an incredibly wide range of industries from Aero and Auto in particular, from some of the other centres, but speaking more specifically from CPI's point of view, the areas of supporting sustainability in pharmaceutical manufacturing and biotherapeutic manufacturing are very much front and centre for our mind. Those are industries which are essential for life, but historically have allowed quite a large footprint to be left behind. And in order to be future ready, have to address their manufacturing and logistical formats to bring efficiency. Uh, sustainability, in my mind, is not about not using stuff. It's about not wasting stuff. How do we bring efficiency to avoid waste? Therefore, the value of the product or the investment in the product makes sense because everything comes at a cost of some form. So a lot of our efforts are in system or process optimization to reduce waste. Pharmaceutical products, consumer goods products in particular, the ability to develop smart tags to allow us to better control the supply chain of perishable items, for instance, foods or, or pharmaceuticals. How do we avoid waste in the supply chain? And the answer to that is not just a sell-by date, as it were, but some sort of smartness in the label that genuinely is able to communicate with us when things are appropriate or not to be used. And then the large facility that we have in Wilton, which is the northeast of England, who use biotechnology to convert waste materials into things of higher value. Historically, that was about taking agricultural waste and turning it into energy sources or, or sugars, which can be converted into other things. Although more recently, the team are very proud of their initiatives in taking waste gases, including CO2, and converting them into useful materials that can then be used to replace the old fossil sources. So rather than us using oil to make chemicals, which is what we've done for 150 years, can we use the waste gases, CO2 for instance, to still give us the sorts of materials that we need to use in our consumer goods, our paints, our coatings, even our foods. So our remit is incredibly wide ranging from how do we lightweight planes and cars and trains to deliver the obvious CO2 emissions reductions through to how do we step change how we make the drugs and the foods of the future to have a much lower environmental footprint and built into that, can we be using waste gases to be the feedstock of those products and that truly would bring circularity to our future. All I can say to that is wow there's so many projects going on there I want to hear more about all of them but we don't have time for that just now. Lucy what are the the main environmental challenges that you're facing at the moment in the space industry? We have two sides that we look at this from sustainability on earth and how the space industry can help with that huge challenge. And then there's sustainability in space itself. So, you know, doing the right thing in terms of developing, manufacturing and launching a mission, but also taking that right through its life cycle, as you're saying, through to the end of the mission and, and how we make sure that we look after space and we don't fill that up with junk. And quite often people use plastic in our oceans is a very interesting example to compare that to. We put a lot of things into space and when we don't need them anymore, are we sure we're all behaving well? So 
I'll start with that second point and, and talk about the use of space by the space industry. There are a few different parts of space that sort of act in different ways. The easiest sort of self-cleaning part of space is, is what we call low Earth orbit. And that's the bit that's still effectively in the upper sections of our atmosphere. So there's still a little bit of density there. There's a little bit of drag on the vehicles that, that are orbiting around the Earth once we deposit them there. And over time, and it's not a really long time, it's a few tens of years, they decay, their orbits decay. They come back down through that thick atmosphere and they burn up. And the reason they burn up, unlike the rockets that took them up there in the first place, is that they aren't designed to survive that experience. You know, a rocket, it's very aerodynamic. It's got that beautiful nose cone on it. It's got all of the right heat shielding in place. So it can get through on the outward journey. On the journey back, you've got something that looks more like a shoebox with some bits sticking out of it, with some plates on the end of it and a couple of trays. And, you know, that is not in any way aerodynamic. And, and as it enters the thicker parts of the atmosphere, it starts tumbling around some bits. Sometimes they align themselves in a particular way. Little heat spots form. And the substance that it's made of, so the combination of those metals, those composites and, and so on, burn up in the atmosphere. And sometimes some small parts make it back down to Earth. And that's normally the spherical bits, because by rotating as they go through this high temperature environment, they don't create that one single heat spot because it just gets spread out across. And as a result, every now and then we find bits of space debris back on Earth. That sort of looks after itself in one way. Now, the problem with low Earth orbit is it's the really, really popular orbit. And um, when we talk about all these mega constellations with the, you know, many thousands of satellites involved, that tends to be in those lower orbits. So then we get into a situation where we've got a traffic problem, effectively, especially over the poles, because in lower orbit, everything crosses at the poles. And so you get a really high density intersection, like a crossroads without any traffic lights working on it. And that is a potential concern. And a lot of people work across the world to model and analyze the locations of all of these many thousands of objects in space to try and make sure that we look after them and, and prevent any collisions. One of the reasons we need to prevent collisions is that if you do have a collision of two bodies together, so two satellites, two perfectly healthy satellites hitting each other, that can form many, many thousands of small pieces and those small pieces all have a very slightly different vector to them in terms of in the way that they're moving. So what was a nice, clean orbital track becomes very spread out. And as it becomes spread out, obviously, then we've got possibility to hit other bodies in the same orbit. And there's something there's a cascade effect that has been modelled, which is called the Kessler effect, based on the, the guy who discovered this back in the in the 70s that, that, that sort of suggests that you could end up with a, a really ugly situation with all of these particles sort of knocking each other out effectively and, and making space unusable. So it's really important that we prevent that kind of thing happening. And it's really important we maintain the sustainability of space. As you go up into other orbits, we have a, a different approach, which is a bit like some of the approaches we've used on Earth over the years, which is a slightly a sort of fingers in the ears and hands over the eyes approach. So we do something called a graveyard orbit where you, you take the spacecraft away from the really useful orbit and you put it a little bit further away. And therefore it's, it's not going to affect a, a really financially useful slot, but it's still there. 
and it's not being looked after. So we have to be really careful. And there's lots of fantastic work going on in the UK, as well as in other parts of the world, to look at managing our orbital space well, but also thinking about how can we reuse those satellites, those bits of upper stages of launch vehicles? How can we recover that body, that that lump of material and, and do something useful with it? We're not there yet, but it's starting to happen and it's a really exciting journey. And then if we look at the sustainability on Earth with space technology, it's a fantastic and a very exciting story. And, and space is only a small part of a really big package of data that's going to help us understand how to do the right thing going forwards. But the great thing with, with space data is that, you know, it's completely free of boundaries. You can really see the impact of different interventions. Thanks, Lucy. That sustainability message leads us quite nicely onto our next question. And that closing the recycling gap is an urgent action for the wind industry, but with long-term goals for developing more sustainable materials. So we know of research going on in biomaterials, uh, self-healing cables as a project we currently have underway, and making the materials we have last longer to be reused again. So Looking ahead and beyond recycling of today's components, what are the more futuristic sustainability goals of your industries in terms of novel materials? I think you've sort of touched on it, but my industry doesn't have different goals. My industry is there to support the goals of our collective output. So those self-healing cables you talked about are novel biomimetic polymer systems that are now going on a casing which have to survive incredible conditions under seas, under choppy swells, etc. Lucy touched on this before, actually, and it's a really interesting point. One of the biggest problems with the innovations that, or the products we have to develop is they don't just have to work in one condition. It's actually really easy to give you material if you could tell me its operating conditions. So if you can define for me very clearly operating conditions, I'll give you a product that's brilliant. Really good. Trust me, it's brilliant. The problem is you never have one single set of operating conditions. You will always have an extreme range from very hot to very cold, I think Lucy touched on. you know, And, and that means that all of my traditional thinking and my traditional formulation approaches, my traditional um, material set or chemistry set, some people call it, we're out with the operating conditions of that chemistry set. So, oh goodness, I'm going to have to invent some new chemistries that allow me to have that wider window of operations. Something that's taking up a lot of uh, my time at the moment is that battery development for electric vehicles is a huge component of what the HMC centres are, are working on. We all recognise that traditional internal combustion vehicles are no longer appropriate for the way that we need to live our lives now, but that mobility and transport is still essential. So how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to have to electrify it. That's great. So we need electricity from sources such as wind. Great. That's how it all transfers together. But that energy has to be stored somewhere. The energy could well be stored in the form of hydrogen. Yep, I get it. Understand that has different challenges around generating the hydrogen, storing the hydrogen, transporting the hydrogen, and then safely using the hydrogen. I get it. Or that electricity could be stored electrochemically in a, in a battery cell. Great, but I'm not entirely sure we know that there's enough nickel, cobalt, manganese, and the other metals are needed, or lithium even, for the battery demand that will be created by a move to those sorts of vehicles. So how do we do it in such a way that we don't exhaust the Earth's supply? Now, one of the answers is going to be building in recycling thinking now 
and not in 10 years' time when we've all got an electric vehicle and then think, oh, what am I going to do with these batteries when they come to the end of their lives? And I'm pleased to say that thinking is evolving and is unfurling. I had heard interesting stories from Lucy's sector of people talking about sort of asteroid mining. The way that we augment the amount of metals on the Earth is, well, we take them from things that aren't on the Earth today. Sounds a little bit uh, Space Odyssey type stuff, but you know what? That may well be what we have to do. And that's what humankind will embrace and adopt to get the right solution for the right problem. I'm just pleased to say that we're now thinking about, but what are the consequences of me doing that? I think historically we would have just done it and not worried about the consequences. So on asteroid mining, Lucy, do you want to come in on that? <laughs> it is it, quite helpful, actually, because I think the, the way that things are working in the space industry at the moment are, are not necessarily about using a particularly novel material, but more about taking a novel approach to the way that we are doing things. And so, you know, I mentioned that sort of fingers in the ears and hands over the eyes approach to reorbiting satellites into another holding orbit. Well, you know, there is research into reorbiting it towards the moon because there's a load of really useful kit in a dead satellite or a dead upper stage. Can we do something crazy with that? Can we send it in the direction of where we're going to go next? So it's there waiting for us when we get there. It's a good question. I don't know what the answer is yet, but people are looking at that. So, you know, we've got all, we've got tons and tons of, of materials already in space that we've put there. How can we best reuse those? There are organizations that are looking at extending the lifetimes or uh, repurposing them in a different way or bringing them back to Earth and burning them up through the atmosphere from an orbit that wouldn't happen naturally, but sort of kicking them back a little bit so they get there faster and, and then do it on their own. But also, I think, looking at not only mining an asteroid, but also mining our own man-made asteroids. You know, what, what can we get out of the stuff we've already put there? There's a lot of raw material in asteroids and there's a lot of already utilised material in the spacecraft and between them, you know, we should be pulling on that availability and finding ways to create some products out of what we've got there. Graham? Lucy touched on something there that, that, that was really important. You asked me initially and I told you I havered uh, and I meandered and, and, and you were asking about sort of extending lifetimes. In our industries, they're often called through life engineering services which is consistent with my first point, which is it's okay to use stuff, just don't waste it. So when you've got a new toy, look after it. Don't break it. We as a society over the last 50 years or so have almost given up on quality manufacturing and quality materials and have accepted and, and accepted and almost expected redundancy. And by redundancy, I mean, oh, it's broken after a couple of years, throw it away and buy a new one. And that habit or that mindset has really undermined our our environmental footprint, but also I would argue our manufacturing sector. So part of the opportunity that I see going forward that, that excites me is a return to a desire to design, make, and then buy products of high quality, where the expectation is because they'll last longer. And by lasting longer, I'm doing the right thing for the environment overall, extending lifetime. And equally, I might argue doing the right thing for our economy, because I can see that it would be much more easily, much more acceptable to reshore or kick off manufacturing in the UK for those sorts of products. 
sort of trivial example from a sector I, I used to work in historically. The average German will spend a thousand pounds on a washing machine, but that washing machine will last for 25 years. The average washing machine in the UK may last 18 months to two years. The cost may only be £200, but given that I replaced it 10 times in the same period, I actually spent twice as much money on it with twice as high a carbon footprint. Was that really a smart choice? So, so I'm quite excited by the fact that people are now thinking about what's the right holistic choice. And by that, I mean my full lifetime analysis of consequences, as Lucy touched on. And how do I make the right choice that might mean actually there's a benefit to designing and building with higher quality, with a longer service lifetime in mind, because that's the right thing to do overall. I love that thought. I think because I am an engineer and I've spent a lot of time looking at hardware and space hardware as well, which clearly I'm biased, but it is very, very beautiful. You look at some things that are built and, and you just think that is not something I feel proud of you know it's not something I want in my house that I want to look after and, and cherish for years I love the idea of us getting really back to high quality products that have some real long-term value to them um, and when I say value I don't mean monetary value yeah. yeah and that requires us to design them and build them with that in mind so the whole notion is actually this is designed to be repairable not designed to have to throw the whole unit away, as, as it were. Um, and, and that's why it's really exciting, Lucy, to think about we're almost depositing raw materials on the moon for future use. That, 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 that's, that, that's fantastic. That, that, that's the sort of force, foresight that, that's needed to say, well, what, not just what's my problem today, what am I going to need in future? And, and it's great to know that that thinking's already going on. And, and you talked about designing that in at the start. Of course, had we been thinking of it 25 years ago, there would have been a slightly different design choice that would have, have created satellites, which, you know, to carry on the pattern of the story, they might not have been the same value for money for their immediate use. But would they have greater long-term value? Probably yes. That piece about looking slightly beyond the end of life of the product is is a really interesting way I think of approaching manufacturing in the UK and I think it takes us back to our roots in manufacturing a bit more as well which certainly my father would say that would be a great place for us to be. Leading on with that economy aspect and going back to the catapult vision we discussed earlier about creating economic value. Let's discuss what that could be for the UK. So the figure that's often quoted for a circular economy sector is that it would create around 8 million new jobs in Europe and predictions of about a quarter of a million jobs in the UK alone. Do you think that's feasible? And what do you think is the scale of the opportunity for a circular economy here in the UK? From the space industry side of things, I think, you know, we've we've been a slightly niche industry in previous decades, and we are now as an industry becoming much more part of a critical national infrastructure, but also uh, a way of providing some of the information that helps us solve some of the big problems that we're facing. And those could be global problems like climate, but also some of the less fun problems to talk about, like uh, the replacement for the Common Agricultural Policy post 
post-Brexit and, and things like that. So when you look at the size of the space industry now compared to, I think, where it's going in the future, we're going to see increases that, that are really quite extreme. The goal, the government goal and the sector goal is to have 10% of the global space economy. To map that back to the circular economy, just don't think that anybody who's at the start of their career now would allow us to think of anything other than the circular economy. So although, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not that young anymore, I know that that's where the real decisions are going to be coming from in 10, 15, 20 years time. And so we have to look at everything we're doing as it has to be a net zero, circular, zero waste scenario. It doesn't matter what industry you're in. That's how it has to come about. So from a jobs perspective, I think every space job will be a circular economy job eventually, is what I'm really saying. Yeah, I echo uh, Lucy's point, which is it's not really a debate. It is going to happen. Why? Well, because my daughters aren't going to let me not make it happen. I mean, my house is essentially now fully veggie, verging on vegan, and I have to sneak out every now and again for a square slice sausage roll when the rugby's on on a Saturday so I can just cheer myself up. Uh, that's actually not a joke. I did manage to find somewhere in Newcastle with a square slice sausage roll for, for watching the rugby. Um, but the serious point is that society will no longer accept that, that mindset. So it's not really a debate. It, it's happening. A few things will have to be true. And interestingly, when I do this, a thought models in my mind. I mentioned ICI at the start of this. And had ICI still existed, uh, a circular economy in the chemical industry would have been much easier to achieve because a chemical work is a fully integrated system. The waste product from one reaction is the feedstock of another. And the waste product of that reaction is the feedstock of another. And as long as you own all the system, you can make sure you maximize the benefit of the flow of your raw materials to optimize the process. And that's great. That's fantastic. However, that's not going to happen again. We don't have ICI. We don't have a global player of that scale who can truly own all the inputs and outputs to make sure that they maximize the system. So therefore, it is possible that the solution is almost the other way around. So rather than being huge and scale, it's small and bespoke and local. So I, I know I've got colleagues in the nuclear sector who will talk about small modular reactors potentially at the end of a street, supporting the power needs of, of a, a micro, micro environment, literally a street, and that being the right thing to do overall. I mean, interestingly, that the, the fastest growing business, and Lucy was talking about SMEs in the last couple of years, there was um, craft uh, gin. Nobody wanted the bog standard gin. I want local. I want to know provenance. I want to know where it's come from. And I want to feel emotionally connected to that product. I want to feel like you're doing the right thing. And I will feel good from consuming that product as opposed to just buying a previously branded bottle of gin. The economy can thrive and value can be created from those sorts of products, which might not be mass. It might not be about huge scale. We might discover that part of our future solution is about the small, the pop-up, the local, because local allows you to have just enough scale to source your materials from here. So that bio-derived, locally sourced can happen at that scale. When you try and become a, a major player, a global player, there isn't enough of that material to support your needs. So actually you don't embrace the new bio-derived material for your detergent or, or wherever it might be, because there just isn't enough of it. But if you park that thought and say, no, Maybe the future has more small, maybe it has more local, and maybe it does still allow for higher margins in the product. Because for all of this to work, the economy has to grow too, right? So we've spent the last 50 years making prices go down. 
well, that's shortcutting your way to future. Maybe the future has the opportunity for prices to go up somewhat, but that you want to buy it. And what you don't buy is excess. You buy what you need. Thanks. Lucy, did you have an SME success story you wanted to share with us? There's probably a, a couple of things I'd, I'd like to mention that sort of fit into the sustainability piece. And I, I've talked a lot about what we do with satellites at their end of life. And, and you know, could we be doing something with those? There are a couple of organisations that have got UK component that, that are working in this area. Um, one of them is called AstraScale. Another one of them is called ClearSpace. And they're both looking at launching something into space and docking onto a spacecraft and then manipulating it either to remove it or to give it a life extension, to help it be used for something else, to relocate it somewhere else. Those kind of activities are really interesting. And they're really interesting because they are also a step towards manufacturing in space, which is a really exciting next step. So if we think about that really hostile environment on leaving the earth that I talked about. You're trying to create something that's appropriate for that very different space environment, but also has to withstand the leaving earth environment. You've hugely over-designed your product because you've created it for both, back to something Graham said earlier. And if we actually flat pack our product into a launch vehicle, take it into space, or even get some of the material in space, and then build it in space. We don't have to design it to withstand those forces at launch. It's not necessary anymore because the only environment you're designing it for is in space. So those companies we've got in the UK who are already on that journey, even if it's some of those early stage parts of those in-orbit robotics, that's already really, really exciting. And then there's another company which I think is fascinating it's called Space Forge and they're Bristol based and they're looking at manufacturing products in space that are going to be essential for us to create the kind of clean society on earth that we're talking about they have a business model that says actually by doing this manufacturing of the product in space we actually get a project that's so much more effective it's worth going out to space growing this product and then bringing it back down to earth and that could be something that's crystalline so you can grow bigger crystals because they're not under gravity or it could be an alloy because of the way that it mixes more effectively but but that capability is really really interesting and I think they're a great organization as well because they're also looking at the way that they have their manage their own footprint so they make sure that not only do they create these really valuable products but they do it in, in a completely zero waste way and make sure that whatever they create, whether it's for pharmaceuticals or fiber optics or, or whatever, it, it's done in a way that really reduces the impact and, and you know net gain for planet Earth, which I think is really exciting. That is really exciting. Thank you, Lucy. Before we wrap up, I'd very quickly like to ask you a question framed in the economic opportunity of the context of political goals of Build Back Better and the COP26 conference that's coming to Glasgow in November. What would you like to see coming out of the COP26 conference specifically to make our industries more sustainable? I would actually quite like to see some fairly draconian interventions, whether it be taxes or regulations on the use of carbons. Because without significant carbon taxation, i.e. the stick part, because the carrot part is additional funding. And you'd expect me to talk about the carrot part. And the carrot part's obvious. Of course, I want the carrot part. 
But the stick part does have to go alongside this on if we are going to decarbonize our materials and find bio-derived routes. Remember I talked about taking gas and converting it into materials. To, to make that happen, today's economics don't stack up. They just don't. Why? Because oil's too cheap. Let's be clear, the last year has probably made it worse because the fallen demand for petrol, diesel, oil-based products just means the prices come down. So how exactly am I incentivizing people to change their habits when the economics keep forcing me the old way? So we are going to have to find a way, and I'm sorry for being so brutal, and I'm sorry if it sounds anti-industry or anti-business or whatever, but sometimes you need a compelling reason to change. And carrots are great, so continued investment and funding is absolutely essential. Sticks have their place too. And we might need to look at the UK leading the way in regulating against directly fossil sourced materials. Notice I said directly fossil sourced, because actually the materials we want are the same materials. I just wanted them to have been made from a source that wasn't directly oil, if you see what I mean. And I think that in and of itself can be a game changer for the UK because we can steal a march on the rest of the world. We can take it more seriously in the rest of the world. And then what we can do is to build fresh, build factories fresh, if, if you like. It's hard to argue with that. I mean, that's something that I agree with a lot. And I suppose I'll just try and put it from a different angle. And w what I would like to see come from our Glasgow commitment is to start off, I want it to be something that we feel really proud of having had COP26 in the UK. And the difference I think we can make is the citizen involvement. So not just the two weeks of COP, but what can we do in the lead up to COP? How can we get communities engaged and involved so that we are all committed to our own net zero assessment? You know, what I want organisations to be looking at their approach to being net zero, but I want every individual to know what that means as well. I want the technology to support that so that when I take a decision to buy the cheap toaster or the expensive toaster, I know what my choices are really based on and what compromises I have made to do that. In order to make that happen, obviously, the whole supply chain technology needs to be evolving. Obviously, there's a lot of space technology in there, but it's not space technology on its own. It's a real system effort. And if we can get to the point where one of the apps on our phone is something that tells us what our climate impact is for each of our retail choices that we make, then I think we'll all be a lot wiser and we'll understand much better uh, what we're doing. And it doesn't mean we won't always do everything perfectly, but it does mean we'll be able to think about why we're taking the decisions we're taking and be wiser to our impact on the earth. Thank you both for such an incredibly interesting discussion. There's so much more there that we're going to have to get you both back for future episodes to go into more detail in all of these areas. But before you go, where can our listeners find out more about your catapults? You can find more about our catapult on our website, the sa.catapult.org.uk. But we do a, a lot of chat on social media as well. So you can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn and you can probably find us on Facebook as well, although I'm not on it. I think the, ve the very same story for the HVMC overall and CPI in particular. I won't bore you all just now with web addresses, but a quick Google search will find us. We'll put those details in the show notes for listeners who'd like to know more. Lucy and Graham, thank you for taking part in today's episode. It's time to de-energise now. Until next time. 
In the meantime, listeners can find out more news on renewable energy at ore.catapult.org.uk and follow us at ore.catapult.org.uk.